In this weekend episode, three segments from this week's Washington Journal program on C-SPAN. First, Andrew Rudman, director of the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute, discusses the killing of two Americans kidnapped in Mexico this week and the state of cartel violence in that country's northern region. Then, Alliance for American Manufacturing President Scott Paul discusses the state of manufacturing in the U.S. and the impact of China's economic and trade policies. Plus, Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, Bednam Bentaleblu, discusses a new IAEA report that Iran is in advanced stages of building a nuclear weapon. We begin with the cartel violence in Mexico that killed two Americans earlier this week. Andrew Rudman joins us now. He's the director of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center here in Washington, D.C. And on the kidnapping and killing of Americans who crossed into Mexico from Brownsville, Texas last week, what is your understanding of what's happened here? Mm -hmm. What do we know at this point? What don't we know? Good morning, John. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. Um, you know, I, I think it, it's obviously tragic. Uh, what we un- what we understand is that uh, four or five people from from the Carolinas uh, drove to, as you said, to Brownsville and across to Matamoros uh, for one of them to apparently have a medical procedure. Um, you know, understanding is that there was uh, perhaps some confusion between rival cartels and that this was sort of a, a, a wrong place, wrong time. Uh, and uh, the U.S. and Mexican authorities uh, collaborated quickly to, to uh, rescue the, the two hostages, um, unfortunately not before the other, two of the others had, had been killed. Um, and, and I think it shows that the U.S. and Mexico can, when they cooperate, can actually uh, act quickly to, to bring people to justice. They've arrested, as I understand it, one person in Mexico, uh, apparently the person who was guarding them, and they are looking for for others, because, you know, this is presumably not just a one-person operation. What should viewers know about this part of Mexico and yeah. uh, cartels operating mm-hmm. on the border? Well, the, this part of Mexico, the, the state of Tamaulipas is actually one of the, the most dangerous. Uh, the State Department uh, ranks it as level four, which is do not go. Uh, the State Department uh, provides travel advisories, and, and Mexico is a large country like ours, so they do the travel advisories on a state-by-state basis or sometimes even more discreetly than just a, a state. And, and Tamaulipas is one of six states uh, that the State Department recommends that Americans not travel to. Um, it is not- has notoriously been a, a dangerous state. It has uh, per capita the highest number of disappearances in all of Mexico. Uh, it's about a little over 18,000 out of three and a half million. So it, it, it's, not a, it, it's not a safe place. The State Department recommends not traveling to this part of Mexico, right. but you can simply drive across the border here and do that anyway? Right, because um, the State Department can make recommendations, but it can't prohibit you from going to Mexico. So if, if people want to go, they can. And, and it is important to, to keep in mind that there are um, over a million border crossings every day between the United States and Mexico. So while this is obviously really tragic, um, it is one, one really tragic event and, you know, maybe 900,000 not tragic events. So I think it's important that we not sort of take it as you, you, nobody can ever go to Mexico in, in under any circumstance, because that's not the case either. One of the headlines from today's papers, this is the front page of the Washington Times today, senators want military in Mexico citing the killing of Americans. Legislation would declare war on cartels. It's uh, Senator Lindsey Graham 
who is sponsoring this legislation. There's the headline from the Washington Times. This was Lindsey Graham yesterday. Now, I don't know if it's a lack of will on behalf of the Mexican government to bring these cartels to bay or a lack of capability. Either way, it's the same result for the United States. Chaos, heartache, terrorism, murder, and it needs to come to an end. So we're going to do two things today. We're going to introduce legislation in the coming days and trying to make it bipartisan to designate these groups, foreign terrorist organizations, under U.S. law to open up more capability to go after them and their uh, conspirators all over the world. Secondly, we're going to enter introduce an authorization to use military force where the United States military can go in and destroy these labs and destroy these networks if possible. Once you're designated an FTO, a terrorist organization, the second step that we'll be engaging in is give the military the, the authority to go after these organizations wherever they exist. Not to invade Mexico, not to shoot Mexican airplanes down, but to destroy drug labs that are poisoning Americans. It's time now to get serious and use all the tools in the toolbox, not just in the prosecution lane, not just in the law enforcement lane, but in the military lane as well. Hopefully this will change behavior of the Mexican government. Nothing would please me more than to have a meaningful partnership to take these drug cartels down and stop killing Americans. But if Mexico do, will not cooperate, then we're going to have to do what's in our national security interest. South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham on Capitol Hill yesterday uh, to the idea of the U.S. military going into Mexico to destroy these labs. Is there a precedent for that in the past? Um, I don't know that there's certainly, I mean, the, the last time uh, U.S. troops went into Mexico was uh, over 100 years ago in the, the Mexican-American War. Um, I, I know that's not what Senator Graham is suggesting. Um, I think that, and, you know, security experts will suggest that, that the military is probably not the best tool to address drug trafficking. I mean, certainly um, you could use the military to blow up a drug lab, but as long as there is demand for the product, um, we've seen we've seen the cartels evolve in what they traffic and how they traffic it. So I think the, it, it's a, a little more. We need to be a little more nuanced. It, it is possible um, that the designation might open up more opportunities. I'm, I'm not certain. If if it does, then then I think that would make sense. But I think you're talking about to, the designation as a right, foreign DTA, terrorist right. organization, exactly. But how, I, how do we designate cartels right now in Mexico? You know, John, they're, they are certainly designated as criminal groups. I'm not, I, I, I admit, I'm, I'm not expert in exactly what the nuances are between if you, if you name it a, a terrorist organization, um, they're now referred to as transnational criminal organizations, TCOs. I, I think one of the points that Senator Graham made that's really important is he, he used the phrase all over the world. And, and I think that's really important to remember that this, like many challenges that the U.S. and Mexico face, is, is bilateral, but it is, it is global at the same time. And, and so we need to cooperate, um, including cooperation between China and Mexico and the United States to stop the movement of precursor chemicals, as well as um, pursuing the finances of the cartel. So again, it, it is more than just, I think, using the military to go after particular, um, particular Mexicans or, or others operating in Mexico. That was Andrew Rudman, director of the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute. Next, Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. 
on the state of manufacturing in the U.S. and the impact of China's economic and trade policies. So earlier this month, you testified before the House Select, Select Committee on China, and you said this, quote, Our hubris and neglect aided Beijing's ambitions, weakened our capabilities, and hollowed out our middle class. Explain that, and what capabilities were weakened? Sure. Thank you, Mimi. Well, you know, the, the concern that this committee has is with the policies of the Chinese Communist Party and how they may threaten American security, human rights, a variety of different concerns. I wanted to contribute also that we've made some missteps along the way in the United States. Uh, the way in which we invited China into the world trade system uh, was basically a blank check uh, and, and built on trust that China would fulfill its obligations. That, that didn't pan out. We also underinvested in making ourselves more competitive. Uh, I think that's changed recently, uh, but the combination of those policies of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, as well as the fact that we were not prepared, uh, led to some devastating consequences. And basically, stuff that we were once making in the United States started to be made in China, and we had no plan. Devastating consequences like what? Well, for example, in the Midwest, uh, uh, we, we lost uh, tens of thousands of factories over a short amount of time within the span of a decade. And in a lot of these communities, you know, these factories were the major employer, particularly for workers who did not have a four-year college degree. And there were no other options. And all sorts of bad things happened. There was ripple effects because these workers weren't spending money at the grocery store or weren't contributing taxes. You know, in many ways, these communities suffered and they're still digging out of the holes. And I, I think it's really interesting because there was some research that's been done at Princeton and at MIT that showed that the job loss uh, and the wage loss also contributed to some devastating social consequences. Uh, more deaths of despair, uh, higher divorce rates, just lots of really profound impact for these communities in the heartland. And I think you'd agree, we probably saw this manifest in our politics over the last uh, you know, seven or eight years as well. So let's talk about manufacturing jobs here in the U.S. currently. I'll put it on the screen. There were 19,000 jobs added in January, an average of 33,000 jobs added per month in 2022. That doesn't sound like it's a, it's a bad thing. No, this is a good thing. And yet, I think the last couple of years, we've seen a reversal. First of all, the pandemic brought to light that if we don't want massive amount of shortages or sh supply chain disruptions that we need to invest in American manufacturing again. I think many in the private, private sector have woken up to that fact. And I think our public policies are starting to reflect that as well. We're seeing some big investments uh, in American manufacturing. And so where there were a couple of decades where there weren't a lot of plant announcements of, of, uh, or ribbon cuttings. In fact, it was mostly plant closures. Now we're seeing all sorts of plant opening announcements in high tech and steel and just lots of other stuff as well because this, this, I think the, the pandemic brought into focus that we can't depend on China or other countries alone uh, to supply the goods that we need, particularly in a time of, of crisis. Uh, and so we're, we're starting to turn around the ship, but I think this focus on China is still important because uh, there's, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. 
Well, let's talk about semiconductors um, because that has been a a big problem with supply chain and not having enough conductors. So let's take a look at the CHIPS Act. Uh, It says this, that the the $53 billion in grants for semiconductor manufacturing and research, investments to support regional technology hubs and tax credits to promote investment in semiconductor manufacturing through 2026. Give us an overview of how that CHIPS Act is supposed to work and if anything's been happening so far? Yeah, I I think that a lot has been happening and it's good news. The initial round of funding has, I think, spurred a lot of private sector investment. And so you've seen firms, some with brand names that people will recognize, like Intel and Texas Instruments, uh, announce that they're expanding or building new semiconductor manufacturing facilities uh, in the United States, uh, all over the place. And and a lot of these are in high-tech semiconductor manufacturing, uh, but we're also going to see some investments in the supply chain as well. So this is very important. This is happening in Arizona. It's happening in Idaho, in New York, in Ohio, in lots of different places. And the idea is that we'll be able to supply more of the semiconductors that we consume in the United States. We got to a point a, a generation ago in the early 90s, we made about one-third of the world's semiconductors, and, and we consumed about that much too. Uh, just last year, we, cons- we, we made about 7% of the world's semiconductors, and our consumption had stayed very high. And so we built up this big deficit, this major dependence on China, uh, and on Taiwan uh, and elsewhere in Asia. So that's starting to come home, and we're starting to see the fruits of that. Uh, and within the next couple of years, I think that's going to give the United States a lot more capacity, a lot more ability to be resilient and to make sure that we can buy automobiles and washing machines and all the, you know, all the gadgets that we depend on and take for granted that we saw you know, months and months of delays on just uh, a year or two ago. Now, critics are calling the CHIP Act industrial policy, where taxpayers are picking winners and losers. And I want to show you something from last month's Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party hearing. Kentucky GOP uh, Republican Andy Barr spoke out against for those calling for the U.S. to adopt that as a lever against China. As China, as China expert and former Defense Department official Michael Pillsbury has written, the CCP is entering the final phase of its 100-year marathon to replace the United States as the world's global superpower. An underappreciated dimension of this strategic competition between the United States and the CCP, uh, and one of the reasons why the CCP is arguably ahead of schedule in that marathon, is the CCP's economic aggression against the West. Uh, But uh, I believe very strongly Uh, that the United States should not mimic the Chinese industrial policy, should not copy the Chinese command and control system. Uh, We should not uh, embrace overly broad measures that would raise questions about our commitment to a market economy, which is a key source of strength for the United States in contrast to China's communist central planning policies. In other words... As uh, this committee does its work, and uh, as we consider policy responses to the threat from the CCP, I would submit to my colleagues and to policymakers in this country, we should not try to counter China by becoming more like China. 
So, Scott, what do you think of that? He says we're going to become more like China. Yeah, I, I tell you what, in that hearing, I agreed with about 99% of the things that were said by everybody, which is rare to find in a hearing. I did not agree with that, and I thought that he was kind of setting up a straw man. The, the CHIPS Act is so far away from Beijing's command and control economy, I, I couldn't draw more distance to that. The, as I mentioned, these are private sector firms that are using a lower cost of capital to develop in the United States, and I think it's extraordinary. The government's not going to run these factories. It's not, it's not going to tell them how to produce, what to, what to make, or anything like that. I mean, there will be conditions for, for getting that capital, but it's going to give them a head start. And, and it's nothing like what you see in China, where the government literally owns uh, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of, of what are called state-owned enterprises uh, that manufacture, and they have, they have no profit motive. Uh, all of these American companies are going to still have a profit motive. And, and the other thing that I would just add is that We've tried, I think, the purest approach, the, the free market hands-off approach for a couple of decades in terms of trying to compete with, uh, with China. I mean, we've had lots of tax cuts for corporations. We've had lots of deregulation. None of that has made us in a more competitive position. It's made the corporations a lot richer. But this is going to make sure that they're making, they're returning some of that to the United States. They're investing in factories here and they're going to give us a leg up. So I agree with Congressman Barr. We should not be like China. The CHIPS Act as far from China as you can possibly get. That was Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Next, Foundation for the Defense of Democracy's senior fellow, Benam Ben Talablu, discusses the growing threat posed by Iran's nuclear program. I want to start, uh, obviously, we're going to be talking about Iran's nuclear program. Um, Defense Undersecretary Colin Call was at a House Armed Services Committee last week. He said something about um, Iran's ability to, cre- to, uh, to make a nuclear bomb. Here he is. Iran's nuclear progress uh, since we left the JCPOA has been remarkable. Uh, back in 2018, uh, when the previous administration decided to leave the JCPOA, Uh, It would have taken Iran about 12 months uh, to produce one fissile, uh, one one, uh, bomb's worth of fissile material. Uh, Now it would take about 12 days. Uh, And so I think there is still the view that uh, if you can resolve this issue diplomatically and put constraints back on their nuclear program, it is better than the other options. But right now uh, the JCPOA is on ice because uh, there was uh, an arrangement on the table uh, last summer that the Iranians uh, uh, were not willing uh, to take. And, of course, Iran's behavior has changed uh, since then, not the least of which their support for Russia in Ukraine, which is the subject of the, of the conversation here today. So uh, I don't think we're on the precipice of reentering the JCPOA. So, you're- so a couple of things there, Bahnem. Uh, first was 12 days. Was that surprising to you? Uh, no, the regime has steadily uh, eroded uh, that one-year breakout timeline that uh, Colin Call had mentioned, and in particular, it made qualitative nuclear advances. Starting actually right around the time that the Biden administration was elected and inaugurated, uh, you had the regime do several things to speed this up, uh, drop the clock all the way down from several months to about two weeks, as he mentioned. You know, they installed more advanced centrifuges. These are machines that actually don't break as much. They install, they enrich uranium at faster rates, and you can do it with a smaller footprint. So it's actually quite critical for a sneak-out kind of program, not like a massive breakout kind of program. Uh, the regime has been enriching not just to 
you know, 20%, which they lasted pre-nuclear deal. They resumed that in January 2021. In April 2021, they went to 60%. A very important subject of discussion now is the regime just flirted with 84%, their highest enrichment recorded rate ever that was detected by the IAEA. While they have not decided to amass 84% enriched uranium, uh, the regime is increasingly comfortable taking these risks. And the one area I would take umbrage with where uh, Dr. Call was uh, dividing out the nuclear timeline was uh, the May 8, 2018 decision by the U.S. to leave the nuclear deal. Yes, it is true that Iran has broken the barriers imposed on its nuclear program found in that deal. But lest we forget, even prior to that deal, uh, the regime had accumulated anywhere from seven to nine bombs worth of low-enriched uranium on its own territory. So the idea that this is absolutely uncharted water and the the clock has to be the May 8, 2018 withdrawal as a, represents a fundamental misunderstanding of the Iranian nuclear program. I am, however, glad that Dr. Call said that we're not on the precipice of re-entering that deal precisely because Iran feels so comfortable with escalation today that it is happy with the pulled punches of the Biden administration and it is breaking through newer barriers uh, so it's not the Biden administration's fault. It's not the E3's fault. It's not former President Trump's fault. The reason we have no nuclear deal today is precisely because of Iran. So the undersecretary had said that it was a mistake for the Trump administration to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. Do you agree with that? I think style has a substance of its own. Many of us learned that the hard way during the four years of the Trump administration. Looking back on it now, I think you cannot have a holistic Iran policy that is aimed at constraining the missile program, the drone program, uh, doing something much more credible on human rights, while granting the regime's apparatus of domestic repression and foreign aggression massive sanctions relief. So those two things don't square with me. Had I, would I have liked to leave the deal in a qualitatively different way? Yes. Was the transatlantic row between America and its European partners unnecessary in 2018, 2019? Yes. Could things have been done very differently? Yes. But the fact is they weren't. And throughout the entire time from 2018 to present, across administrations, Iran has not been fighting former President Trump or former President Obama or, former pre- or current President Biden. Uh, it is fighting, contesting the United States of America. Uh, so to kind of start and stop these stopwatches on different administrations, again, is to misunderstand Iran's goals. It's not trying to spite one or another. It's trying to spite the United States. Um, the undersecretary also said that some deal with Iran would be better than no deal because it could put constraints on them. Even though it's not likely that we're going to have any kind of deal with Iran currently, do you agree with that? Uh, when Iran is increasingly comfortable giving drones to Russia to use against civilian targets in Ukraine, evolving its ballistic missile program to never-before-seen levels of accuracy and range, uh, increasingly repressing its own people for five-plus months now, Iranian people, and in particular Iranian women and girls, have been leading nationwide anti-regime protests. In that current climate, I think diplomacy would be throwing this regime a lifeline, and I don't think we should be in the business of throwing this regime a lifeline. Now, philosophically, objectively, should you have diplomacy on the table? Yeah, you should have all options on the table. My qualm with the way the Biden administration approached this is because of the unfortunate hyperpartisan politics of the nuclear deal, it was very clear to America's adversaries, not just Iran, but Russia, China, North Korea, where the administration wanted to take a different tack from its predecessor. And that created the space for the kind of gains that Iran has made on its nuclear program. So philosophically, some constraints might be better, but what we trade away for those constraints is where I would take umbrage. And I would love to see those who want some constraints put meat on the bone. 
Who exactly in Iran are you willing to grant sanctions relief to? What kind of behavior change have you seen from these organizations? Has the Central Bank of Iran stopped funding terrorism? Has the IRGC ceased to be a terrorist organization? Has the regime ceased to use major oil and petrochemical sales to fund its regional destabilization? If you can answer me those and tell me that those entities deserve sanctions relief, we can have a conversation about what a limited deal would look like. That was Benam Ben Talablu, senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website, cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern.